our, ver- uh, our verses are going to be Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep as he uh, woke from sleep as he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jordan. You take your seats. Our uh, normal wooden flat podium broke in the trailer today. So if I get disoriented in the sermon, that's the only reason. It's because I'm now using this strange angled music stand. Um, well, uh, Merry Christmas Eve to y'all. It's great to be with you. If you're new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. Um, to catch you up a little bit, this Advent season, we've been walking through the four historic themes of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and today we get to love. Love. And so given that uh, some of you will be giving gifts of love today and tomorrow and throughout this week, uh, it may be helpful to enter into this topic through thinking about gifts of love. So some gifts of love are they're easy to recognize when you get them. Uh, recently, a church member came over and they surprised me with a pint of Jenny's ice cream. And if you know me, you know that a pint of Jenny's is worth more to me than you know the same size like the same size uh, a rock of gold or a diamond, right? So some gifts they they warm your hearts immediately. Other gifts of love they're they don't feel quite as exciting. So I remember in high school I signed up for the wrestling team, and when Christmas break came, to my horror I learned that our coach expected us to practice every day throughout Christmas break, including Christmas Eve. And this was the same winter that The Fellowship of the Ring was coming out in film. So I wanted to spend my Christmas break seeing the movie five times and then coming home and reading the book in my Christmas jammies. And I told my mom, my coach is cruel and I want to quit the team. And my mom looked at me and she said, Stephen, anytime she used my full name, I know I'm in trouble, right? But she says, Stephen, I love you. And because I love you, I am raising you to be a man who's a man of his word. And when you signed up for the team, you committed for the season. And so you are going to commit to this season and see it. If you want to quit next year, that's fine. And she told me this was loving. I didn't receive it as loving at the time. With a little bit more hindsight and maturity, I do. Other gifts, still, still other gifts of love you may view as downright cruel if you're on the receiving end. So I recently heard a story about a high school boy who was about to graduate high school and Looking ahead to his graduation, he was in an affluent family, and he asked his parents for a new car. And his dad said, sure. And so they go out, they look for the perfect car. His dad says, okay, this is where we're going to get you for your graduation. Fast forward, the big day comes, and his dad hands his son a wrapped package about this big. And he says, son, I've given you what, what I believe to be the most valuable gift in the world, namely a Bible. Well, the son in disgust throws the wrapped package down and goes on his way. 
gifts of love. Some warm our hearts, others not so much. And in this story in Matthew, we see the gift of love God gives us at Christmas. And due to either the familiarity of it or a host of other reasons, we often view it as either less exciting or maybe downright cruel if it's not the gift you believe you need. And so if you're here exploring the faith, I'm really glad you're here and, and hope you hear what God offers you, what he gives to you on Christmas. And for you who are here and your followers of Jesus, I really hope this service isn't just about, okay, this is for people who don't know Jesus or I'm just doing the thing that I normally do on Christmas Eve. I hope this does wake all of us up again or anew to the wonder of the gift God gives us at Christmas. All right, so here we'll, uh, we'll unwrap the gift God gives us at Christmas this way. We'll see first, number one, what God gives. Number two, what God really gives. Number three, what God really, really gives at Christmas. Okay, so what God gives, what God really gives, but still what God really, really gives at Christmas. All right, so first number one, what does God give at Christmas? And we're mainly going to camp out here on this uh, short but powerful sermon by the angel in verse 21 where Joseph, he's just found out his uh, betrothed, he's engaged to Mary, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That can be a sermon for next Christmas, okay, but she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And the angel comes to Joseph, and in verse 21, he, he tells Joseph, don't fear to marry her, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here we get the first hint at the gift God gives us at Christmas, and it's in the name of Jesus. Now, the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which literally translates God saves. So in the name of Jesus, we see both his essence and his purpose. We see his essence. He's God. Right? God. He's God. But we also see his purpose, God saves. And so the gift God gives you and me at Christmas is salvation, He's come to save you. Now, there's a friend of mine. He, you know, he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't go to church. And, but we're good friends, and we often talk about faith and you know, send usually friendly jabs at, at each other about the topic of faith and God and, and whatnot and so forth. And when I was transitioning out of uh, the business world a number of years ago into full-time ministry, he was just asking me about it. And I made a comment to the effect of, you know, leading a church, it's interesting because— Unlike, you know, like in the private sector, it's not like we have a product to sell, right? So there, there's not marketing in the traditional sense. And a smirk goes across his face. He goes, oh, no, you do have a product. It's called salvation. And this is a, it's a, it was a multi-layered jab. And, but in there is the assumption that a lot of people carry, include, including perhaps people who are Christians in the church, which is that it's only religious people who believe that they need salvation. But you don't have to think long before you realize that every person believes they need saving from something. And the way you know what you believe or they believe they need saving from is the system that they either create or subscribe to. So for example, if you believe the main problem with the world is political, and then what you need to be saved from is bad politicians— or bad policy, then you will devote yourself or create a, you devote yourself to a system or create a system or a religion that's largely about political action. If you believe the main problem with the world is psychological, and so what humans need to be saved from is low self-esteem or anxiety and depression, 
then uh, what, what you'll do is you'll devote yourself to helping people feel better about themselves. Or you may support environments like, say, a school where you don't want students to be exposed to ideas that may make them uncomfortable or anxious. Let's do one other. Uh, some of you, uh, you may have, your family of origin story may include something like you grew up in a family that was emotionally cold. Or one of your parents abused you or abandoned you. And as you've grown up, you may have created a system for living whereby you don't allow yourself to actually get vulnerable and intimate or committed to a person or a community of people because what you've learned is it's not safe or trustworthy or reliable to give yourself in that kind of way to a person, right? So you want to be saved from being hurt again. You see? So if, if we all think we need to be saved from something, then the question we have to ask is, okay, if God's come to bring us salvation, well, what does God think that we need to be saved from? Point two. So what does he really give us? Salvation from what? And same verse, right? So she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves. What's he going to save you from? For he will save his people from their sins. So what's the gift God gives you at Christmas? He's come to save you from your sin. Now, this word sin, you may shrug at it. Uh, this word may rush at you with emotional baggage, uh, which is understandable. But if you can just try to step away for a moment from maybe how this word has been misused by other people and simply look at how Jesus and the scriptures themselves talk about sin. What is it? And you can distill sin down into two dimensions. So first, sin, the, the biggest part, most important part is sin is simply not centering your life on God. It's not making worship of him, love for him, being loved by him at the, at the center of your life. Now, not centering yourself on God, this can take religious forms and it can take non-religious forms. So a religious form of not centering on God, especially as he really is, can look like you believe in God, but the God you believe in is a God you've made in your own image. So this God, he, he hates the same people you hate. Okay, this God, he votes right down the ticket the same way you vote in the two-party American political system. Okay, so what you see is you're not worshiping God as he really is, you're worshiping a projection of yourself. This is a, that's a religious version of not actually centering on the real God. But it, it can also take non-religious forms. So you may say, well, yeah, like I don't center myself on God. But you can't be human and not center yourself on something. And so what you may center your life on is the freedom to do whatever you want, right? Like keeping your autonomy is of paramount importance to you. You may center yourself on accruing status and career success, you may center yourself on a, a person, right? A, a parent, a child, a friend, a love partner, or the love partner you are trying to get, and place the weight of deity on them to the degree where you are looking to this person, expecting them to give you the affirmation or the sense of safety or the significance that only God can give. So that's number one. Okay, so Jesus says sin is just, if you're not centering your life on God is number one, that's sin. The second dimension of sin is it's a failure to love. 
This is why when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he ties love for God, okay, centering on God, and love for neighbor. Okay, so the second aspect of sin is a failure to love, and this always flows out from the first, not centering on God. So, say for me, if, not that this has ever happened, but say I'm centering my life on comfort and autonomy. When I walk down the steps on Saturday morning, okay, what I'm going to do, or want to do, is to just find a cozy space where I can curl up with a book and a cup of coffee, or watch, watch my favorite streaming service, rather than do the far more demanding task of getting on the ground with my three young children and being actually present with them and to give my wife a break. So you see, love for God, it, it always flows into love in material ways into love for other people. So when God says, I've come to save you from your sin, what he's saying is, in summary, I've come to save you from not centering on me. I've come to save you from your distance from me. I've come to save you from your false ideas of me. I've come to save you from placing the weight of godhood on another person. Maybe I've come to save you from bad religion. I've come to save you from not having me. And a nice side effect of this is the more you love me, the more you bless others by actually becoming a person of love in their life. So that's number two. What does God really give you? He saves you from not having him and making you into a person of love. Okay, which leads to number three. Let's, cause that's still not all. What does God really, really give you at Christmas? And God's answer to, if you don't have God at the center of your life, God's answer isn't to give you some inspiration or give you some information or a book like Rules for Life or Atomic Habits, as helpful as those things can be, right? His gift is to give you himself, and this is why Jesus has a nickname. In verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God says at Christmas, he says, in order to save you from not having me, I'm going to give you me, and this really is the best gift. As I, the more I parent, the more I see this. So I can make an income in order to get a soft carpet for my children in the living room. I can go to my way to purchase them toys and have them delivered to my door, right, to give my children. But what does that mean if my kids are on the carpet It's nice and comfy, and as they play with their toys, it's an empty space next to them because they don't have a father who's actually with them. No, the best and the most costly gift that I can give my children is myself. It costs way more energy, turning my phone off, actually being there with them. The best gift I can give is me. And that's what God gives you at Christmas, You see, while many religions and systems teach that love is important, it's only Jesus, it's only Christianity that says that love itself became a person. A person to be known, a person who loves you. And on that first Christmas morning, God becomes a child. And as this child grows, in an unequaled way, he centers his life on God, and he loves other people. And earlier we mentioned that when you open yourself up to love and be loved, you open yourself up to the possibility to be hurt. And Jesus is hurt. Okay, as his hands are held down by nails, yes, but more so by love. As he takes on all the consequences for your sin 
and then rises again from the dead so that when you receive him, you are given a love that the more you enter into it, the more powerful it becomes, more powerful, powerful enough to heal the the pain-ridden world we live in and powerful enough to heal the aches in your soul. And so when you call on the name of Jesus, which is really as simple as, God, I want you, through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus, you get him. You get a personal connection with God, and that's available to you today. And for those of you who you count yourself Christians, here I I hope already you're beginning to be reminded of the best gift we receive, which is God himself. And there's a challenge in here too, because there's a way where you, you can believe this. You're like, I could, I could preach this sermon. In a lot of ways, I hope you could. It should be a very simple message. The message of Christmas is simple. You can believe the Christmas story, but not actually center your life on Jesus. And you even see it here in this passage. We didn't go into it in depth, but when Joseph receives this child Jesus into his life, it's profoundly disruptive. Okay, it creates social ostracization for him and Mary. He has, he becomes a refugee in Egypt because King Herod is after Jesus to kill him. It disrupts his life. And so for you, like, is bringing Jesus into the center of your life actually disruptive in any way? And one way that can can be communicated, just because this is what I've been doing. So I've been recently checking out Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography, because why wouldn't you check out Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography? (laughs) He also acts in one of my favorite Christmas movies, Jingle All the Way, okay? And so in his autobiography... And then uh, another book he recently wrote, which is called Be Useful, which is such a great title. He, he, Arnold talks a lot about the importance of vision. This, this is how he became so successful. He had a vision for America, and he had a vision for what he could do. And this, he says, you know, you have to have vision. And he's right. And, and everybody has a vision, by the way, whether you think you're a visionary or not. A, a vision is just your idea of the good life. But the question you have to ask is, when you go about creating the good life or your vision for life, does Jesus have any say in that? Okay, because if he's at the center of your life, you don't actually get to create your own vision. Okay, there, there's a lot of latitude within, you can, you can work, but I mean, Jesus says some really challenging things about money and marriage and that your church family, if you follow him, should be as important as your blood family. Okay, he says that most of your energy should be spent not toward career and status, but investing in people in material ways, especially the people you don't believe deserve your affection. Some of these people may include people you're going to be spending the next couple of days with. It's a way you know you've centered yourself on Jesus. And so I just... And I know that we have some newcomers this morning, and I may not have the relational mileage with you for you to receive this. Um, I, I hope you can in some way, and especially for the, the members here. I just, in, in love, I'd hate for you, member or guest, just be like, yep, got the Christmas story. I'm going to go out my business. But your life doesn't, it hasn't actually changed. And when you give yourself to Jesus in this way, that is when you find the, the most fullness of life because he's the best king. He's the best person to center your life on. You know, many years later, that father who gave his son that Bible passed away. 
and his son goes to the house to do some tidying up, and he finds that package still wrapped. And he sits down, and he opens the package. He sees the Bible. He opens it up, and out falls a check. A check for the exact amount of the car that he and his dad had picked out. The son missed the car. Far more important, he missed the love of his father. And for many people, including you here, Christmas can be like that. Right? We're underneath the gifts and the gingerbread men and the songs, all of which are good. Or underneath the sadness you may feel. Underneath all of it, you miss the gift, the love of God, You miss the check that is given you that can be cashed for a rich life with him, beginning now and perfected in eternity. I hope you take it. Let's pray.